Today is the Feast of Pentecost. It shall bring the Easter season to a close at sunset tomorrow. Last week, we celebrated the mystery of Jesus ascending into heaven. We saw how this mystery was part of the process by which God would achieve man's salvation, beginning with the mystery of the incarnation when he who is God descended from heaven, became flesh, and dwelt among us. The mystery of the incarnation was absolutely essential for all the other mysteries, the Eucharist, the cross, Jesus' descent into hell, the resurrection. And I said last weekend that the divine love for man, the divine love to sustain man in this world would be revealed in yet another mystery, Pentecost. The sending of the Holy Spirit is that final living mystery. Now, it shocks Christians to hear this, but Pentecost is not a Christian feast. It is a Jewish feast known as Shavuot. Shavuot can be translated as Feast of Weeks or Feast of Oaths. In the Judaism of Jesus' day, Pentecost, Shavuot, was a time to thank God for the early harvest, hoping that the later harvests would also be plentiful. For religious Jews today, Pentecost, Shavuot, is a two-day celebration from May 30th to June 1st, where believers renew their reception of the Torah, the law of God, that was given to Moses over 3,000 years ago on Mount Sinai, and that God is renewing his covenant relationship with his chosen people, Israel. It is customary for devout Jews to, to spend the first night of Shavuot studying the Torah. For early Jews who accepted Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah, Shavuot took on a whole new layer of meaning, that the gift of the Holy Spirit, or what they would have called the Ruach HaKodesh, became the first fruit of Jesus' ascension into heaven, a first fruit who will remain with the church and through whom a harvest of more fruit, the faith of believers, would come. Why, however, did Jesus promise to send the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, to grow the church? Yes. To bestow a diversity of spiritual gifts on believers? Absolutely. To help believers serve together for the common good of the church and humanity? Definitely. But there is another more essential, more fundamental reason from which all the others flow. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And again in John chapter 16, verse 13, the Lord tells us, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
The most fundamental task of the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit, is not to speak in tongues, but to preserve and guide believers in truth. Why? Jesus knows from first-hand experience with us how easily we lose the truth, how quick we are to ditch the truth, or try to reshape the truth when the truth is inconvenient. During his trial before Pontius Pilate, the Lord said that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Do you know that this was Jesus' gift to Pilate? This was Pilate's golden moment? That Pilate's life could have radically changed in that moment of encounter with Jesus. But how did Pilate respond? What did he say, all you Bible-believing Christians? What is truth? You see, for Pilate, truth is a relative thing. Tony, you've got your truth. Gene, you've got your truth. Pete, you've got your truth. Claire, you've got your truth. Judy, you've got your truth. Mary, you've got your truth. I have my truth. And no one can legitimately say, and no one should ever dare say, that his or her truth is any better or more true than anyone else's truth. Do not many today believe the very same thing? Pilate would be very happy in the 21st century. Jesus, however, violated all political correctness when he made an exclusive. It's terrible. You can't use that word today, exclusive. Everything has to be inclusive. But Jesus was very exclusive. And he made an exclusive claim as God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Muhammad never said that. The Buddha never said it. Abraham, Moses never said it, but Jesus did because Jesus is God. And this is one of the reasons why Christianity is often persecuted. Our critics rage. This is rigid, inflexible, it's dogmatic. Is it rigid? Yes. But it's precisely the uncompromising rigidity of Jesus' claim to be God and the exclusive way to his Father that liberates us from the endless searching for something that's more true than the truth, which can only end in utter disappointment. Is Jesus' exclusive claim inflexible? Yes. Its inflexibility, however, points one to put other religious beliefs and philosophical theories into their proper perspective to see what is good and just in them and honor them accordingly because whatever is good and just has its origin in God while we remain secure in the knowledge that in Jesus we have the fullness of revelation. Is it dogmatic? For Jesus to make such an exclusive claim that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Absolutely. For those who think Jesus is only a man or a nice teacher. 
for those who accept the grace to believe that Jesus is God, then Jesus' exclusive, exclusive claim to be the way, the truth, and the life offers a security that no one or no thing in this world can. For Pilate, and for many of the educated in the ancient world, and in the world today, this truth of Jesus' exclusive claim was and is intolerable. Now, people, of course, love it when the church helps the poor and comforts the sick and dying or gives shelter to the homeless or feeds the hungry or champions the rights of the oppressed, but they reject the source of such ministries, Jesus, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life, who alone is man's hope for salvation. And there are those who try very hard to silence the church's moral claims or prevent the church from serving the larger society. They forget, however, that we shall not tolerate that because the call to serve others does not stem from the church as some mere human institution, but from the knowledge of who is our origin and who is our end, Jesus, the Son of the living God and that in serving others, we are serving him. The primary function of the Holy Spirit is to preserve the worshiping church in the truth of who Jesus is and all that implies for the lives of believers. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Practically speaking, what does that mean? It means we are not free to just make things up as we go along. The Holy Spirit guides the church, keeping us rooted securely in the past, not so we become a museum of ancient curiosities, so that we do not forget where we have come from. And secure on that foundation, we can move forward in hope into the future. We are not free to call what is evil good or what is good evil. To call what is contrary to both reason and nature a right. We are not free to jettison the inherent dignity of every human person from conception to death for the sake of compromise with the transient political order of the day. To engage in such things are not the actions of free beings who have the dignity of being made in the love and image of God, but the actions of fallen creatures who chose to reject their dignity, and remain enslaved to our baser passions and ignorance from which nothing good can come. The task of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to the church, who remains with the church until the Lord comes, may it be tonight, is to preserve us in the fullness of truth whether we choose to remain in the truth, well, that is another matter altogether.